me. Let my words be your words, God, and let your spirit move in our midst. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. Thank you for standing. In the church, we, we often speak a language uh, that is only known by church people. Uh, some people refer to it in what I'm going to be calling in our series is Christianese, the things Christians say, the things church people say. We, we say things in church, right? We say things like, um, we're in a sanctuary. You go to any public building in the town of Ajax, and none of them will be referred to as a sanctuary unless you're in a church. A church often refers to this space that you're seated in here this morning and worshiping together as a sanctuary. You might even hear the, the old phrase, when I was in junior camp and youth camp, they had what was called the tabernacle. And that was the place where everyone went to have church, down at the old tabernacle. Uh, my mom grew up going to a church called Midway Tabernacle. Those are some, some big old biblical Christian words that, that we, just, we just accept it for what it is sometimes, but we don't, we don't pick up on some of the, the nuances of those meanings. We say things like sanctuary, tabernacle, and church, but what does that mean? What, is, what does the Bible say about those things? And I mean... If you want to get into names and church signs, well, just take a look at some of these here. For example, you might not be able to see it, but this is the, the Something Creek Baptist Church, and their sign says, having trouble sleeping, try one of our sermons. <laughs> the, next, the next church, this is the Christian church, they said, concealed weapons class, January 30th. <laughs> That's an interesting sign on a church, right? You know? Uh, this one is some Presbyterian church. You have one new friend request from Jesus. Confirm or ignore. Some of them are clever. Some of them are, are quite hilarious. Keep going. Honk if you love Jesus. Text while driving if you want to meet him. <laughs> this is creative church. Church names and church signs, right? This is uh, we love hurting people. I don't think they quite meant it that way. We love oh, hurting we love. people. Oh, right. Yeah. Not, they meant we love hurting. people who are hurting. Yeah. Yeah. Next, yeah. This one, don't let worries kill you, let the church help. <laughs> Again, I don't think that's exactly how they made it. Now, when you when you talk about church names, you get to something like this, Guided Missiles Church. I'm not, not sure the context. <laughs> Someone thought it was clever. And they put it on a bus, apparently. Uh, this is the cool church. That's actually, that's kind of funny. And I thought, man, I'd like to go to the cool church, right? The next one was uh, Run for Your Life International Chapel. Wow. I'm not sure that's what they meant, but anyway, church names, right? Church, church, uh, church ease. Halfway Baptist Church, instead of all the way, where you're only going half. <laughs> but, you know, people get... Then, but then you see things like, uh, I don't know if you've ever heard the churches with really long names. I looked one up and it was First Church of the Last Chance World on Fire Rival, Revival and Military Academy. Now, wow, that is a church name. Man, that, that's big. And sometimes you go to church and you see funny things like this that, that uh, 
and you go, you just shake your head and go, why? What, what is, what is the intent? What is the purpose behind this? What is the, what is the reason we're coming together? Is it for any of these? You know, these signs were funny and uh, these names were cute. Some of them were interesting. But, but we, we, we look into the scripture to find our source. Really, this isn't about a religion per se. And the Bible has good things to say about religion, um, if, if you want to look at the word specifically. But, but this is more about our, what, are we following the word of God? Are we living our lives according to scripture? Are we, are we following and speaking the words of God and, and living according to his principles? So, so this next little series, we're going to talk about some of these Christianese things that we say. Christianese things that we talk about that might even be implied, but do we really live it out? Do, is it really part of our lifestyle? And, and do we really understand what we say when we say it? Why do we call the church a sanctuary? Uh, you think of the word in a, the context of our world, a sanctuary is often referred to as a place of safety, a place where uh, certain things are protected, right? A wildlife sanctuary is a place where wildlife can't be hunted. It's illegal to anyway. Uh, and, and you're not supposed to pick the flowers as you walk through. They call it a conservation area. And when my kids go to conservation areas, they like to take something home with them. And I try to say, well, you know, the purpose of a conservation area is to conserve the natural resources. So if everyone comes through and picks something, then there's not going to be much left to conserve. So we'll just, we'll enjoy it while it's here, but we'll leave it behind. You know, when we take a stick, they love carrying sticks through the forest. Uh, but those sticks are going to stay back in the conservation area to at least conserve the resources <laughs> at the gate, as far as my family is concerned. And that's what I think of when I think of sanctuary. But what does the Bible refer to as a sanctuary? Why do we call this place a sanctuary? What was God's intent with this? Well, the first time we see this in the Bible, we see the word sanctuary in the Hebrew, mikdas, or mikdash which literally means a holy or a sacred place. It's a place of worship, a place of refuge and safety. And we see this in Exodus chapter 15, verse 17, where God says, you will bring them in and plant them in your own mountain in the place, O Lord, reserved for your own dwelling, the sanctuary, O Lord, that your hands have established. But this is a line from the Song of Moses. If you remember, Moses was the leader who helped the people of Israel exit out of Egypt under the hand of Pharaoh. They were slaves there for many years. Moses came along and, and told Pharaoh, let my people go. Pharaoh said, no. Moses said, okay, play. One through ten. Finally, Pharaoh said, okay, go. Moses goes with the people. They get to the Red Sea. Pharaoh chases after them. And the Bible says that God set up a wall of fire between them and Pharaoh for a time. Moses stretches out his rod across the, the, the Red Sea and the waters part. And then Moses walks his, the nation of Israel across on dry ground. When they get across, Pharaoh is released from his hold at the back and begins to follow Moses and the children of Israel through the Red Sea. And God says, okay, Moses, stretch your hand over the water. Moses does, and the waters wash away the armies of Egypt. And Moses begins to sing a song of praise 
to God for what he has done. For how he delivered the people of Israel from the hand of the evil King Pharaoh. And this is what he says as part of that song of praise. That you will bring them, the children of Israel, and you will plant them on your mountain. God had a mountain that he had, he had ordained, that he had picked, that he had chosen. And he told Moses, I'm going to plant my people in my mountain. And, and Moses said, this is the place, God, you have preserved for your dwelling place, the sanctuary, O Lord, your hands have established. The first sanctuary, you might not realize, was not a tent, it was not a temple, but it was a mountain. The first sanctuary that God chose to dwell or to live in or to be a part of was the sanctuary of the city of Jerusalem or the nation of Israel. God had decided that I am going to live for a time in Israel, in Jerusalem. I'm going to set up my dwelling place. Now God is not limited to time or space. The Bible tells us that, that there is no place that you can go that God is not. If you make your bed in the, the height of the mountains, he's there. If you descend to the, the valleys or even down to hell, God is there. His presence fills all of time and all of space. But when the Bible talks about God's dwelling place, it's where God chooses to establish his name and his law and his promises and his people. And so this is where God said, I'm going to set up my place where I'm going to be known to live. I'm going to be known to live in Jerusalem. I'm going to be known to live in Israel for a time. It was the holy place, the holy mountain of God, sometimes referred to in Scripture. And so the whole nation of Israel was expected, God expected the nation, the country, the region, the place of Israel to be his sanctuary. But as we see through the, the story of Scripture, God intensified that sanctuary from Israel down to something even a bit smaller. Israel is pretty big as far as land mass goes, and Jerusalem is a, a decent-sized city. Uh, but God didn't want to just be in that area. He also wanted to be have his focus a little bit narrowed even further. And so in Exodus 25, verse 8, the Bible says, Have the people of Israel build me a holy sanctuary so I can live among them. Notice what God's intention is. God's intention for a sanctuary is not for a place of sacrifice. God's intention for a sanctuary is not even so that his people can worship him. God's primary intention for a sanctuary is so that he can live among his people. Praise God. That was his point. That was his goal. The sacrifices, the worship, all of that was secondary to the intention and the purpose of a sanctuary is so that God could live among his people. And so the second sanctuary we see in scripture is also called the tabernacle. And I have a picture of it here that Grace can show you. And it was originally a tent. It was a tent that was set up in the middle of the camp of Israel. God gave Moses the blueprints of how the tabernacle was going to be constructed. And by the way, tabernacle means dwelling place. 
That's what the word tabernacle means. God's dwelling place. And so God gave Moses the blueprints. He told him you need to build a fence. The fence is seven and a half feet tall of white linen. That was the fence, the perimeter surrounding God's house, God's dwelling place, his tabernacle. And within that perimeter, only the priests could come and make sacrifices. And in, inside that was that perimeter was the tabernacle itself. And within that tabernacle, it was divided into two main rooms. One was the holy place, and the back room was called the most holy place. And this is how God designed he wanted to live among his people. The Bible says that while Israel traveled through the wilderness on their exodus from Egypt to the promised land, by day there was a cloud that sat right over top of that tabernacle. And by night there was a pillar of fire that stood in that tabernacle. For 40 years, every time you opened your tent door, your tent faced the tabernacle. This was an odd setup. This was not strategy 101. M Moses did not go to the local bookstore on his way out of Egypt and pick out a strategy for crossing a desert wilderness with 4 million people in tow. And if he did, this would not have been the camp di diagram that they would have put inside that, that self-help book. They would not have told Moses to put their sanctuary of their God in the center of the camp and have all of the tent doors face the sanctuary and the backs of the tent facing the wild wilderness enemies and animals that surrounded them. It didn't make any sense. Strategy-wise, this was a, an unwise, unfit way of doing business. Essentially, you would want all the doors of the tent to face out so that at least if you looked out your door, you could see what was coming towards you. You could be somewhat prepared. You would have sentries, guards stationed around the camp, and the camp would not be structured in this way. But God wanted his people to put him in the center of their nation, the center of their gathering, the center, and everything you see from the scriptures, every time God is somewhere, he's always in the middle. Every time. Jesus, when he was with his disciples, when he went to the Mount of Transfiguration, and the Bible says that, that the glory of God began to reveal, be revealed through Jesus in that moment. The Bible records that while Peter and James and John were there watching what was going on, behold, Moses and Elijah stood with him on either side. And he was in the middle. When Jesus was on the cross, where was he? He was in the middle, in between two thieves. Every time you see Jesus, he's always in the midst of somewhere. He's in the middle of something. And God was in the center of the camp of Israel. Every door of every tent opened to face the temple. When you looked out through the crack as you were going through, going to sleep at night, my daughter sleeps with the nightlight. It's on a timer, so it's not blazing in her eye all night long. But as she's going to sleep, she sees the, the soft yellow light on the wall as it, as it cascades up her, her room just to let her know everything's okay and she can see her stuffies and everything is, is where it needs to be. Her little kitchen and everything inside of her room is right where it needs to be. So when you were going to sleep in the wilderness, you had the nightlight of God's presence because it was a pillar of fire by night. And that little nightlight would shine through the cracks of your tent, letting you know God's watching over. You can go to sleep. God's watching over you. 
God's got you. When the sun was so hot during the day in the middle of the in the desert, that cloud would form over that entire encampment, providing them shade and comfortable rest as they traveled or as they stayed and waited for God's direction. God was in the center. When God's in the center, you know that he's watching over you. When God is in, in the center of your life and you are living with him. Remember, the word sanctuary was all designed around the idea of God dwelling with his people. It wasn't about setting up a religious institution. It wasn't about setting up a way of life. It was about God living with his people. You might even say it was God's preoccupation. His obsession, his thought or feeling or desire or the heartbeat of his, of his desires. This, this permeated everything he did was to establish a dwelling place with his people. God's obsessed with living with you. And so this is how God designed the tabernacle. This was the best they could have. God living at the center of their life. But God... This, this wasn't the final resting place. Eventually, Israel became a nation, set up their borders within Israel and Jerusalem proper. And the Bible says that for a time, the tabernacle of God was erected in Israel. And for a time, people would worship at the tabernacle. And even for a shorter period of time, David had a special tent where the Ark of the Covenant lived apart from the tabernacle while the temple was being built. And David ordered the materials to be collected. God refused to let David actually do the building. His son Solomon came along, King Solomon, and King Solomon built the temple of God, built the tabernacle. In fact, Solomon, his way of building it was so unique compared to every other builder at the time. Normally, what they would do is they would bring stones and they would bring them to the building site and then final shape those stones to fit. But Solomon wanted the, the, the holy place of God's temple to be so sacred that not a hammer would be heard ringing on the temple mount during its construction. So historians tell us that Solomon actually had every piece cut in the quarries. And when it came to the temple mount, it was simply placed into its final place. There was no hammers, no chipping, no chiseling on the holy place because he wanted it to be a sacred place for God's presence to dwell. And many, for many years, the temple served as the new tabernacle of God's dwelling place. But there comes a point in the history of Israel when they began to bring foreign gods into the temple, into the tabernacle. They began to worship Baal, and Ashtoreth, and the, the various gods of the Canaanites around their region. And there's a, a particular scripture in the Old Testament, in one of the prophets, where, where God gives the prophet a vision. And the vision is of the presence of God, and the angels of God. And these angels are lifting up above the tabernacle, and they come to rest just above that temple. The presence of God is there. And it's like God is waiting and hovering. God can no longer live within his house because his house has been overtaken by false gods. So God leaves the temple and sits above the temple. 
and waits for a while. And then the prophet sees the vision again, and the, the, the presence of God moves to the edge of the courtyard and waits there for a while. And then from there, he moves from there to the top of the hill and waits over the top of the hill, watching and waiting to see if his people will clear out his house and let his dwelling place be holy once again. And finally, the presence of God leaves the temple altogether. And they discover that God has left the building. And right before you think everything has gone completely, and God has completely abandoned Israel, an angel visits a girl in a place called Nazareth. A girl by the name of Mary. Some commentators believe that she was somewhere in the vicinity of 16 to 18 years of age. And the angel says to Mary, Hail, favored one. You have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb, and you will bring forth the Son, and this Son will be called the Son of God. John, the revelator, writes in his gospel in John chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. This word, this word logos in the Greek means the thought, the plan, or the design of God. In the beginning was God, and God's thoughts, plans, and designs. And this thought, or plan, or design was actually God himself. And then in verse 14 it says that that same thought plan or design was made flesh and dwelt among us. We miss the significance of the words John chose to use in the English. We miss it completely. If we had the ability to read in the Greek and understand even the Hebrew context of what John was saying, we would recognize the word he used for dwelt was the same exact Hebrew word that was used for the, word, the, the tabernacle of the Old Testament. That this word, this presence of God, this thought, this plan, this design of God, which was the very presence of God, the very heartbeat of God, the very obsession of God, now became tabernacled among us. God had a new tabernacle. God had a new sanctuary. His first sanctuary was a country. His second sanctuary was a tent. His third sanctuary was a temple. And his fourth sanctuary was a body. And the Bible said that the word, the, the very presence of God, the thought, the plans, and the designs of God literally became a human tabernacle where God's presence dwelt. The Bible says here, and we beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Again, John pulls Hebrew and, and, and Greek words back from the Old Testament and plops them in the New. Because when you read the word glory, the Jewish mind immediately remembers the story of Solomon. When he set up the temple and when he established it and he sacrificed numerous, he sacrificed so much 
animals on that altar in the temple. The, the Bible says blood was literally flowing like a river from the temple mount because so many animals were being slaughtered and sacrificed unto God at the dedication. And God was so pleased with Solomon's sacrifice that the Bible says the cloud of God's presence, the Shekinah glory of God, filled the temple so much, the cloud was so thick that the priests had to leave the building. They had to exit because God's glory was so visibly manifested in that place. And so John pulls those words from the Old Testament, tabernacle and glory, and attributes them to Jesus Christ. And John was literally saying that Jesus was the thought, the plan of God, tabernacled in human flesh, that God continued his obsession. He wanted to live with his people. Why do you think Jesus never owned a piece of property? Why do you think Jesus lived like a nomad going from place to place? Because God had an obsession. He didn't want to set up his own house. He wanted to live in the houses of his people. He wanted to partake of the table of Martha and Mary. He wanted to sit down among his disciples and go to the house of Peter and sit there under the hospitality of Peter's wife and his mother-in-law. Jesus wanted to sit in the house of Levi, the tax collector, even though it meant that he would be ostracized by the Jewish community for sitting among a traitor. Jesus wanted to be there because God has an obsession and his obsession is he wants to live in your house. He wants you to be able to touch him. He wants to be able to touch you. He wants you to know that he knows. He wants you to see that he sees. He wants you to hear his voice in the stillness of the night when you don't know which way to turn. He wants you to know that you can turn to him. See, Jesus Christ was now God dwelling with man in the flesh. Scripture celebrates his wonderful event by saying, we beheld his glory. This is something that Moses desired for. Moses was on the mountain in Sinai before they ever got to Israel. When God was giving him the plan of the tabernacle, Moses said to God, God, show me your glory. Show me your glory. And God said, Moses, I can't show you my glory. It's not prepared yet. If you see my glory now, you will surely die. But oh, John, you can imagine the, the goosebumps and the tingles in his hands as he's writing these words. We beheld the glory of God. What Moses asked to see, we actually got to hold and touch and walk with and listen to. We smelt Jesus' morning breath. And to us it was like, man, it's hard living with people in the wilderness. But then John recalls, but that was the breath of God. That was the glory of God. We got to live with God. We got to touch God. We got to hold on to God. There was a woman who grabbed on to the hem of his garment because she said, if I could only touch the hem, the edge of his robe, I would be made whole because I'm getting a hold of God. Jesus was the human tabernacle of God. The Bible says that God was manifested in the flesh. 1 Timothy 3.16 He was manifested. The word manifested means revealed or exposed or uncovered. He was God was uncovered by becoming a man manifested in the flesh. At the beginning of his ministry Jesus came into the temple 
found them buying and selling and got angry. This was to be a holy place, a special place. And Jesus threw out the tax collectors, threw out the, the money changers and the lenders, and threw them all out of the, the temple and said, Out, you can't do this. This is supposed to be a house of prayer. You've made it into a den of thieves. You need to get out. And when the Jewish leaders demanded to know, What is it that you are doing? What is it that you think you're accomplishing by doing this? In John 2, verse 18, Jesus, they, they said, If God gave you the authority to do this, show us a miraculous sign. And Jesus said, All right, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. They said, What? It's taken us 46 years to build this temple, and you're going to rebuild it in three days. But when Jesus said his temple, he meant his own body. See, Jesus' body was the temple of the Holy Ghost, was the temple of the Spirit of God. Jesus was God's dwelling place. Jesus was God's tabernacle among the people. That's why when he touched them, their lives were changed. That's why when he, he prayed for them, they were healed. That's why when he pointed his finger at the demon possessed, the demons had to go because Jesus was the tabernacle of God. See, we understand this. And it's wonderful to think of this. Well, when we talk to Jesus, we're talking to God's temple, God's tabernacle. But I would go as far as to say that Jesus was not content with living in a tent in the wilderness. He was not content living in a temple in Jerusalem. Nor was he content being relegated to one human body in the New Testament. See, this understanding continues on past the incarnation. It continues on this idea of a sanctuary. What is a church? What is a sanctuary? What is a tabernacle? Continues past the pages of the Old Testament and enters into the new. But it even continues past the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus because you might even say, well, the, the temple of God was torn down and rebuilt. Great, but now the temple has risen into heaven and we cannot participate with him. How is he going to live with us now? We continue on in our study and we learn that, that Jesus pulled his disciples together one day in Matthew chapter 16 and said, I'm going to set up something and I'm going to call it the Ecclesia. He looked at Peter and he said, Peter, who do men say that I the son of Ben Ammon. They said, well, some say you're John the Baptist. Some say you're Elijah the prophet. Some say you're this and you're that. And Jesus said, that's nice, but who do you say that I am? And Peter said, well, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said, great, Simon, flesh and blood did not reveal this unto you, but my Father, which is heaven, has, has given you this understanding. And, and, and I'm going to tell you another thing, Peter. You're Peter, but upon this rock, I'm going to build my church. The first time the word church is used in the scripture. Jesus did not use the Jewish word, which what we might have assumed Jesus, they were familiar with synagogue or synagogue in the, in the Hebrew. They, they, they were used to that word. That was the, where the Jews gathered. That was where, you know, when they couldn't come to temple, they went to synagogue. 
If they lived far away from the temple, they could come to synagogue every week and hear the word of God taught and preached and, and, and spoken about. They could even sing songs of worship together in the synagogue, much like we do today. And, but Jesus did not use that same word when he was talking about what he was building. Jesus used a completely different word. And that word is called ecclesia. The word ecclesia in the Greek means a group of called out believers. A group of people that come together outside of their, their natural community. And they decide the governmental structure of that community. Jesus decided to use the, the governmental word of ecclesia because ecclesia meant, for example, in the town of Ajax. If we had an ecclesia in Ajax, we would have a group of citizens come out from the town and come together in one place. And this group of citizens would discuss the affairs of the town of Ajax. We, we call it city council today. And they, they decide the bylaws, they decide your taxes, they decide how, how is the laws of the government of Ontario and the government of Canada going to be enacted within the, the borders of the town of Ajax. And Jesus used the same word to describe his church. That the church is supposed to be a group of people that come out from their culture, out from their society. They come out from the world that they were born into. They come out from this, listen, I don't care where you're from, what your family life was like, what your mom did, what your dad did, who they were. When you become part of the church, you come out of that and you become a part of something else. And when you come out of that, you come into the church. And guess what happens when you become part of the ecclesia? You become part of the group that is now spiritually in authority over what goes on within your local area. I'm telling you, this is not just a four-wall place where we come to worship and praise God, but this is a place where we get to pray over the city of Ed. We did it last week. We prayed over the kids that came into this building. What were we doing? We were being the governmental, spiritual governmental structure in this area, praying a covering over every school, praying a covering over every teacher, praying a covering over every child. And that authority that was released in this place has a spiritual impact in every school, in every region, in every part of this city, in every child that came into this building. Not because there's anything special in us, because it's what Jesus set up. So we call this place where we gather a sanctuary. But is that really true? If they tear down this building, is it a sanctuary? We've long held the, the, the benefit in, in Canada of being tax-free in our properties. But this year, the town of Ajax started charging the tax on all non-for-profits, schools. It's across the board. It's not just to churches. There's a slight, it's $80 a year. It's, not, it's like a drop in the bucket. But you see what I'm going? The, there, there's coming a day, perhaps in the near future, where we're going to struggle to meet together in a building. So what happens to our sanctuary? If the sanctuary is relegated to these four walls, then what happens when it gets torn down? Or they tell you, sorry, if you don't abide by the agenda of this government, you cannot worship together in a building. We're not going to allow it. It's very possible it happens in other countries. It can happen here. Sir. Right. Yes. So what happens to our sanctuary when the sanctuary can no longer be used? See, that's the misconception. When Jesus said, I'm building a church, he wasn't talking about a building on the corner of 467 Westy Road South in Clements. 
or the corner of Shaw Court and Weston Road. Jesus wasn't talking about a structure. He wasn't talking about a mega church. He wasn't talking about an organization. He was talking about a group of people that when we come together, we become the tabernacle and the presence of God. Isaiah said it like this. What house will you build for me? Speaking on behalf of the Lord, Isaiah 66, 2. All things my hand has made, and so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one whom I will look, who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my words. In other words, God was saying, the heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house are you going to build me? And God says, the only house that I'm going to live in is the heart of one who is humble and contrite and who trembles at my word. See, now the new place of God's dwelling is not a tent in a wilderness. It's not the nation of Israel or the city of Jerusalem. Those have been long vacated by the presence of God. God doesn't live in the tabernacle. He doesn't live in the temple. He doesn't live over the holy place. He doesn't live in a sanctuary over a church. Uh, I know we say this is the sanctuary. God respect the sanctuary. Don't do this. Don't do that in God's sanctuary. And I, I understand churches mean well. But we miss the point. This building is not God's sanctuary. But God's sanctuary is now my heart. Ezekiel 36 verse 26 says, I will give you a new heart and I will put a new spirit in you. I will take out your stony, stubborn heart and give you a tender, responsive heart. I will put my spirit in you so that you will follow my decrees and be careful to obey my regulations. See, what happens when you receive the gift of the Holy Ghost? Why is it on the day of Pentecost? Have you ever wondered this? Why on the day of Pentecost did wind blow and fire appear above the heads of every person who received the Holy Ghost? Because when the temple was first started, the Bible says that the glory of God filled the place like a cloud and there was a pillar of fire that established itself over that building. So in the same way God's presence visited the temple and the tabernacle in the old, when they received the Holy Ghost for the first time in the New Testament, there was the same appearance of wind and fire just like in the temple of old. And so God was saying, just like I established myself back in the Old Testament over a physical tabernacle, now I'm not just in one place, but I'm in every person who has received the baptism of the Holy Spirit with the evidence of speaking in other tongues. When you receive the gift of the Holy Ghost, you become God's temple. You become God's tabernacle. And God's obsession to live with you is completed when you receive the gift of the Spirit. Because now God doesn't just live around you. Now God just doesn't, you know, wherever you go, there is the presence of God. But now God is in you. The hope of glory is now inside of you. So Paul could say in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19, don't you realize your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who lives in you. This is why Peter could go to the man who was laying at the gate beautiful and hold him by the hand and say, silver and gold have I none, but I've got something on the inside that's working on the outside, and such as I have, give I unto you. Uh, I don't have money to put in your pocket, but I have the Holy Spirit of God inside of me. I'm now the temple of God's presence. I'm just like Jesus was in his earthly ministry. I am the place where God lives. That doesn't mean I'm God. 
hold on, let's, let's, let's establish something real quick. I'm not God, but God lives in me. That doesn't mean everything that I do is perfect. I'm still human, and God has grace for me, and I still have to repent every day and, and bow my, my, my flesh to the before the cross and surrender to Him. But now the Holy Spirit is in me so I can do what Jesus did. And Peter reached out, grabbed the man by the hand, and the Bible says he received strength in his legs for the first time because the Holy Spirit that was in Peter transferred to the man who was sick. And when God moves into a life, sickness has got to go. God can heal. God can deliver. God can set free. Amen. That's why my friend Josh Risar, who had a $300 a day cocaine addiction, and when he visited the Pentecostals of Peterborough for the first time, he took his line of crack and went back to the bathroom and snorted his line of crack on the toilet seat in that church and went back into the service and went up to the front and instantaneously God delivered him from a $300 a day addiction to crack cocaine and methamphetamines in that moment to this day. Now Josh Resar is an international evangelist preaching all over the world. Holy Ghost crusades, miracles, signs and wonders. God is doing great things through his ministry because when you come into the presence of God, God can move them. Everything that was broken and destructive and old and, 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 and put in something new, he could put a new heart within you. Amen. See, when you're baptized in Jesus' name, the name is put over you. But when you're filled with the Holy Ghost, the name is put inside of you. Yes. Can we stand? I feel the presence of the Lord moving in our midst this morning. I feel the presence of God here because now God doesn't just want to be around you. He doesn't want you to just feel Him on the outside. He wants you to have Him on the inside. See, it's, it's not really... This building is not the sanctuary. Do you know what the sanctuary is? When we gather together, the Bible says we are the temple of God. We're living stones fitly framed together and we become collectively the place where God dwells. God forbid that we ever have to give up this building or any other building God might give us in the future as we grow. God forbid, I hope to God that we still have a place to call our, our home church, our place to worship and, and centralize our activity. But hey, if God sees fit that according to his design it's for better for us to be out than in. This won't change anything about the presence of God. It won't change anything about the effectiveness of the church. The church was never more effective than when it was forced outside of its comfort zones and into the streets, into the highways and the byways. That's why we got to get it through our head. This building is not the sanctuary, but my heart is His sanctuary. If you haven't received the gift of the Holy Spirit, you've never spoken in tongues before as the Spirit gives you the utterance, God can fill you this morning. In a minute, I'm going to invite us to come around the front. And if, if you've never received the Holy Ghost, this is a great place for you to reach out in prayer and come around this front area and pray together and God fill you with His Spirit. You'll speak in other tongues as the Spirit gives you the ability to do it. It's not something you can do, but God does it as a sign to you that you've received His Spirit. And if you have received the Holy Ghost before, then maybe come up and pray together with your, with your brother.
brothers and sisters in the Lord. Why do we why do we come around the front? Maybe we'll talk about that in one of our series. But we we talk but we do it for a few reasons. One, we can repent of our sins. Now, Pastor, you say I can't repent of my seat. Yes, of course you can repent of your seat. If you feel more comfortable to pray where you see it, by all means. The important thing is that you pray. But there's something about when you walk forward to a an area, there's something about the physical activity coming up to the front that signals to your body and your brain, I'm taking steps toward Jesus. Is Jesus any more up here than he is back there? No, not really. It's just an exercise. It's like, why do we raise our hands? We'll talk about that too. Because it's an exercise. There's a, a connection to my, my, my physical movement that connects to my spiritual desire. So if you have a need this morning, if you need to be healed of some sickness, if you need a deliverance in your life, if you have a request that you want to make known to the Lord, it's good to come and pray with one another. If you need to receive the Holy Ghost, you can come around this front, lift your hands, repent of your sins, and just begin to praise God. And as you praise Him and worship Him, His Spirit will come and fill your life. Would you come this morning? Would you come and pray and seek the face of God this morning? Sanctuary Let's find a place of prayer. If you feel more comfortable to pray where you are, come around. You're welcome to do so. But would you pray and ask God to make you a sanctuary of His presence?
have your way in our hearts today, Jesus. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. Make your abode in our life, God. Make your home here in my heart. I surrender to you, Jesus. Thank you for his presence. Thank you for his word, his hand in your 